0: There are two things that stand out to me that my music professor in college said, and none of them have anything to do with theory. The first, a piece of advice. Quote, panic early. Since I'm a millennial and a proud Ashkenazi Jew, my day doesn't start until I've had my first bout of anxiety. So being told that I can use that to my advantage, I was like, cool, I'll do that. Now every time I know a high-pressure situation will encounter me, I make sure to stress out early so I can be relaxed when I actually should stress out. He also once said something along the lines of, quote, When you're a fan of a musical artist, it's like a relationship. When he said that in class, I, of course, unsolicitedly blurted out a story validating his statement of how angry I was in 2012 when Jason Mraz released Love is a Four Letter Word, his follow up to the first album of his I fell in love with, We Sing, We Dance, We Steal Things. I felt that Mraz had sold out and abandoned his silly yet lovable fedora pop folk singing vibes behind and traded it for whatever that garbage was. To this day, I refuse to listen to any Jason Mraz album post-2008. Apparently, he has released a bunch of albums since, don't care, the hurt I endured from that subpar release prevents me from giving him another chance. Okay, yeah, so fandom is definitely like a relationship. And within relationships, traditions tend to unfold. For my friends and I, one tradition we started sometime during college was at the end of every year to make a list of our favorite albums that year. It has become a sacred tradition. So much so that if one of us doesn't get around to making that list and posting on social media, a mandatory text message will be sent to that friend interrogating them over the whereabouts of that list. Certain years, posting that list gets me through the stresses of the holiday season like 2016 when I couldn't wait to share with the world that I thought Sturgill Simpson's A Sailor's Guide to Earth deserved the award for top album of the year, slightly beating out Blonde by Frank Ocean. 2017 also felt like a pretty dope year for music, probably why I meticulously spent a month crafting my list and even included my favorite songs for the year as well. I ultimately crowned Kendrick Lamar's Damn as number one, though I was torn between that classic and Chris Stapleton's From a Room, Volume 1. In other years, coming up with the list feels more like a chore, like 2019, when I don't think any album I was hyped for impressed me. Sturgill Simpson released another album that year, but he abandoned his country sound for a rock sound. Y'all know I love rock, but I was like, WTF. Despite my disenchantment, it got rave reviews, but still, I was like, WTF. And even years later, as Sturgill has returned to his country roots and then some, I'm still like, WTF? But anyways, what if I were to make that list, but for every year since 1990, because, you know, I have to keep the title of this podcast a little sincere, what year would stand out as my favorite, or dare I say, the best year for music? Would it be some year between 1998 and 2002, when new metal, boy bands, and post-grunge dominated the charts? Would I find myself in the mid-aughts, dying on the hill defending crunk and emo music? Or perhaps it would be a year from when I attended college, back when EDM and indie pop ruled the world. Oh, who are we kidding? We all know the alt-rock stan I am, so of course I would rank some year in the early 90s as that with the best music. While the first two episodes exclusively covered rock music, my standum for 90s music goes beyond the funky monks and flannel wearing sad boy rockers. Though that's a big part of it. Although alt-rock is probably my favorite genre, I'm also a big fan of hip-hop, alt-country, and folk. But I can appreciate pretty much any genre, except EDM, which I briefly mentioned in my conversation with Ryan Gilman in the first episode. So I'm confident that the year I choose will not only feature the highest concentration of quality alt-rock, but overall the largest collection of unique, influential, iconic, memorable, replayable, and accessible albums from a variety of genres compared to any other year since 1990. So which of the early 90s is it? Obviously it has to be before the year 1995, but for fun, let's touch on 95 for a second. The lingering effects of Kurt Cobain's death provided for a largely inadequate year for music releases. Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill is a classic minus ruining Uncle Joey for me. Me Against the World by Tupac slaps, but other than that, I can't find myself coming back to anything else from that year, really, except for whatever my daily mixes recommends me from Radiohead's The Bend. My Birth Year 1993 certainly featured its fair share of alt-rock with Pearl Jam's verses and Nirvana's final studio album In Utero, and even though I'm not a big Smashing Pumpkins fan, I have to mention their second album, Siamese Dream. As much as I do enjoy some tunes off that record, I just can't vibe with Billy Corgan's voice. Hip-hop certainly did release some of their best that year with arguably the greatest hardcore hip-hop album of all time, Wu-Tang Clan's Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers, as well as the alternative hip-hop and jazz-rap classic Midnight Marauders. But beyond those five, well four really, masterpieces, I'm struggling to find an album of significance that year. I can't even find four albums from 1990 that have stood the test of time. Shout out to Primus though for their weirdest fuck debut, Frizzle Fry. I'll characterize 1992 as solid for sure, at least in terms of diversity, with iconic releases from artists of all kinds of genres. Allison Chains, R.E.M., Beastie Boys, Pantera, Mary J. Blige, and Faith No More all released some of their best work that year, which is probably the first and last time all of those artists will find themselves included in the same sentence. But I'm not sure how many people in 2023 will hear Cars on the Highway blasting those albums. I mean, I probably would, but only because... I'd be blasting it from my car. Anyways, then there were two, 1991 and the other remaining 365 days. I genuinely did second-guess myself a bit here since both years produced the best of the best, albums whose, covered, whose covers I'd have tattoos of if I wasn't afraid of needles. 1991's rock collection included the ones that led to the alt-rock explosion of the 1990s, such as Friends of the Podcasts, Nirvana's Nevermind and Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It also featured the greatest album named after a basketball player in Pearl Jam's 10 and the super dope record by the super group Temple of the Dog in their self-titled One and Done Classic. Let's also not forget Soundgarden's entrance entrance to the mainstream and Guns N' Roses' well-received follow-up to Appetite for Destruction. Also, God gifted us another Primus album that year, Beyond Rock, East Coast Hip-Hop gave us another Tribe goodie and another universally beloved album from Public Enemy. With all of those albums, I'll probably play literally as soon as I'm done recording, one key thing is missing. The Dirty South. I'm Doug Brenner and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s stand. Today I'll be making my first official hot take. I apologize, I mean hot cake. And that is, 1994 was the best year for music over the past 33 years. By the way, I should clarify, the Hot Cakes part of the title of this podcast is a reference to beloved funny and funky 90s alt-rock band Cake. Although I intended to discuss 15 albums and 1 EP, my desire to explore the depths of each record butted heads with my equally important requirement of avoiding an unnecessarily long monologue. Therefore, I will present 11 albums. Nonetheless, the albums released in '94 that I will discuss represent so many different styles of music, backgrounds, and different parts of the United States. Some of these albums helped spur the creation of enduring subgenres, some were influential in the emergence of popular subgenres down the road, and others simply demonstrated the prowess of already established artists. While planning this episode in my head, I figured I would present these albums in the format of a countdown, but, much to my dismay, I'm not a columnist for a music magazine. But, as a former expat, I'm quite confident in my travel skills. And by travel skills, I mean my ability to fall asleep on any plane at any time. So I figured I'd take y'all on a guided tour of the wonderful music released in 1994 so y'all can fully grasp the greatness of commercial sound that year. But before I do that, I suppose I'll introduce y'all to that musical year with the phenomenal albums and one EP that didn't quite make the cut. Those albums include the album which served as the turning point for the Britpop movement, Oasis's Definitely Maybe... The highest-selling independent album in history, The Offspring Smash, Selena's highest acclaimed Tejano classic, Amor Prohibido, Rock's most bone-chilling EP in Jar of Flies by Allison Chains, and Purple, the psychedelic Rock Meets Grunge follow-up to their debut to prove that Stone Temple pilots were not some Nirvana ripoff. For our first stop, we are headed to the Big Apple. We'll fly into JFK Airport and for our first sight in our journey through the concrete jungle, we'll catch the E-Train to Queensbridge Houses, the Queens-based public housing development where Nasir bin Olu Dara Jones, aka Nas, grew up. In 1991, when East Coast hip-hop's critical and commercial status continued to elevate, the 17-year-old rapper received his debut feature on the track, Live at the Barbecue, by the Toronto and Queens-based rap trio, Main Source. The verse struck a chord with Faith Newman, the director of A&R at Columbia Records at the time, who consequently sought out the young MC and signed him. Nas' debut record, Illmatic, released April 19, 1994, featured an array of skilled and reputable producers, including L.E.S., Q-Tip of A Tribe Called Quest, Large Professor, and DJ Premier. Premier and East Coast hip hop icon whose discography includes work with some of New York's most legendary MCs, such as Jay Z, Rakim, and Most Def. Lyrically, Ilmatic presents the hardships and realities of living in the U.S.'s largest housing project at the height of the crack epidemic. The plight of his peers stands out as a common theme within Nas's reflection throughout, which at times elicits gratitude from the young rapper. Despite the turbulence of his surroundings, Nas uses his hooks as an opportunity to stand in solidarity and offer uplifting messages to his afflicted community. Even though Illmatic featured a powerful production team and world-class lyricism, the album initially failed commercially in comparison with several of his East Coast peers, not even selling enough copies to go gold in its first year. However, the album has since gone double platinum with two singles selling more than 500,000 copies. Although Ilmatic perhaps did not achieve its anticipated commercial success, critics and musicians within the hip-hop community regard the album as a tour de force. Upon its release, the album received a 9 out of 10 rating from the UK publication NME, 4.5 stars from USA Today, and became only the 7th album to receive a 5 mics rating from hip-hop magazine The Source. Retrospectively, Rolling Stone ranked Illmatic number 44 on their 2020 list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. The music publication Pitchfork listed the record at number 33 on their list of greatest album of the 90s. And in 2012, the hip-hop magazine Hip Hop Connection called Nas' debut the third greatest hip-hop record of all time. Many rappers consider Illmatic as a direct influence on their work. Among these artists include rap titans such as Ghostface Killa, The Game, Mobb Deep, J. Cole, and Kendrick Lamar. While I'm certainly no hip-hop maven, I have found that few albums flow together as effortless, effortlessly and poetically as Illmatic. Nas's genius enables accessibility within an dense, thematically unsettling, and complex record. The lyricism and wordplay raise the bar featuring some of the most memorable lyrics of any song of any genre. For example, in NY State of Mind, I either think of or quote the line, quote, I never sleep, cause sleep is the cousin of death. At least once a month. And the album's third track, Life's a Bitch, Nas spits an inspirational line with, quote, I switched my motto instead of saying fuck tomorrow, that buck that bought a bottle could have struck the lotto. To this day, Illmatic easily sits on my list of top 10 albums of all time, and I would rank it as my second favorite hip-hop album, behind only Stankonia by another artist we will visit on our journey. Leaving Queensbridge, we'll hop on the F train to get to 122 St. Mark's Place in Manhattan's East Village, the address that housed the now-defunct Sine Coffee Shop bar, and most importantly, the music venue where in the early 90s, on Monday nights, a young singer-songwriter would perform. The musician played guitar virtuously, but it was his voice that overwhelmingly captivated audiences, reminding them of his father, Tim Buckley, the late psychedelic folk singer popular in the late 60s and early 70s. The young musician I'm referring to, his estranged son, Jeff. Columbia Records sought to capture the energy and beauty of those Monday night gigs, and thus in November 1993, released a short collection of live performances titled Live at Sine, containing two originals and two covers. The originality within both foreshadowed his legacy. Jeff Buckley recorded his debut and sadly only completed album, Grace, in Woodstock, New York, which Columbia released on August 23, 1994. Like Ilmatic, Grace featured ten songs, all of which are as fine as organized bits of sound can get. With seven originals and three covers, Buckley showcases the depth of his craft, penning haunting songs of heartbreak, mortality, and abandonment. Stylistically, no two songs sound alike as Buckley ranges in intensity from the soft hymn of Corpus Christi carol to the acoustic-driven, folk, pop, ballad, lover, you should have come over, to the hard rock, zeppelin esque eternal life. Despite a generational magnus opus, its uniqueness perhaps proved detrimental as it lagged commercially with an unimpressive peak spot of 149 on the Billboard Hot 200, and the only chart success, albeit minimal, rested on the performance of the second single, Last Goodbye. Although Buckley struggled to find a massive fan base. The critics largely ate it up, garnering five star reviews from Allmusic, Rolling Stone, and The Guardian, as well as an A rating from Entertainment Weekly and a 9 out of 10 from NME. Jeff Buckley's premature and tragic death in 1997 left Grace as essentially the sole material to define his musical legacy. Multiple publications regard the album amongst the greatest. Rolling Stone ranked it 147 on their list of the 500 greatest albums of all time in 2020. AcclaimedMusic.net, which statistically ranks albums based on their appearance in various publications' all-time greatest lists, placed Grace at number 58 and ranked it number 7 for 90s albums. In 2014, Buckley's cover of Leonard's, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, which is included on the record, was inducted into the pre- prestigious Library of Congress, Congress as, quote, a culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant recording. Perhaps more significant than the opinions of critics and list makers, Jeff Buckley's music, inevitably interchangeable with grace, for better or for worse, has posthumously constructed a cult following and inspired enormously talented singers, including Tom York of Radiohead, Matt Bellamy of Muse, Lana Del Rey, and Adele. For me... As I mentioned very, very briefly in the pod's first episode, Grace has been my favorite album of all time since high school. Like most people, Buckley's cover of Hallelujah invited me into the awareness of his vocal prowess, but not to sound too contrarian, that tune honestly is at the bottom of my list of favorite songs of his. The vocal note he hits at the climax of the conclusion of the title track captivates me every listen. The humor and eerie dark irony of So Real is mystical, and the powerful softness of his cover of Nina Simone's Lilac Wine, like the rest of the 10-track Wonder, is breathtaking. As much as we enjoyed Manhattan, it's not an official trip to New York City without a stay in Brooklyn. So to get to Brooklyn, we'll take the L train to Lorimer Street and then hop on the G train to take us to Clinton Hill, the neighborhood where Christopher Wallace a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. Biggie, grew up. Indisputably, the face of East Coast hip-hop, from a pop culture perspective at least, the mythological talent, along with producer Puff Daddy, now known as Sean Combs, released Ready to Die, Biggie's debut and only studio album he lived to witness on September 13, 1994. The album, rife with dystopian first-person accounts of crime, sexual exploits, depression, and family problems, examines New York street life similar to the way Nas does on nomadic but in a more aggressive and hopeless manner. On Ready to Die, Biggie provides a masterclass in wordplay, like the opening lines on the album's fifth track, Warning. Quote, Who the fuck is this? Paging me at 5.46 in the morning, crack of dawn in, now I'm yawning." Wipe the cold out my eye. See who's this paging me and why. And on arguably Biggie's most recognizable song, Juicy, with the lines, quote, We used to fuss when the landlord dissed us. No heat wonder why Christmas missed us. Birthdays was the worst days. Now we sip champagne when we thirsty. The album quickly turned into a commercial and critical hit. On October 1, 1994, Ready to Die peaked at number 15 on the Billboard Hot 200 and within two months was certified gold and went on to sell over 6 million copies worldwide. The album spawned two top 40 hit singles the previously mentioned Juicy, as well as the laid back and funky hedonistic anthem Big Papa. Before I mention the accolades from critics contemporarily and retrospectively, I must quote one of my best friends, Dylan who once told me, quote, "The bad doesn't take away the good and the good doesn't take away the bad." Despite the brilliance of the album, it's not without its downfalls. Part of the genius of the record rests on the effective pairing of Biggie's dynamic rapping and Sean Combs's polished production, which heavily utilized sampling from legendary funk artists such as the Isley Brothers and the Ohio Players. This got the album into trouble in 2006 when a judge halted the sales of Ready to Die and awarded two record companies that owned rights to the Ohio Players' Recordings $4.2 million due to sampling one of their songs without permission. Beyond the legal issues, the misogyny present in the record certainly hasn't aged, aged well with painfully cringeworthy interludes between certain songs. With all that being said, critics hailed the album as an innovative East Coast hip-hop game-changer with five-star reviews from both AllMusic and Blender magazine. In 2017, Pitchfork magazine awarded the record with a 10 out of 10 rating, and it received 4.5 mics out of 5 from The Source. Retrospectively, Ready to Die's legacy lives amongst the most esteemed albums ever, with the rank of 22 on Rolling Stone's 2020 list of the 500 greatest albums and number 40 on Entertainment Weekly's 2008 list of the greatest albums released between 1983 and 2008. The album's influence found its way to popular rappers such as Nicki Minaj, Logic, Kendrick, and of course, Biggie's good friend, Jay-Z. Biggie Smalls was the first hip-hop artist I sought out after broadening my musical horizons sometime in high school. Easily within my top five all-time hip-hop albums, Biggie's vulnerability, honesty, and authenticity on Ready to Die constantly dumbfounds me. And in 2023, now as I proudly fangirl over hip-hop royalties such as Kendrick, Tribe, Nasty Nas, J. Cole, M, and an artist I will discuss shortly, I owe it all to the Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die. For our final sight during our visit to the Big Apple, we'll hop on the G-Train and take it to Fulton Street and take a short walk to Atlantic Avenue Station, hop on the Q-Train to Avenue M, and once again go for a short walk down to Edward Murrow High School, the school where Adam Yauch attended during the late 70s and early 80s. Yauch, better known as MCA, along with Adam Horowitz, a.k.a. Ad-Rock, and Mike Diamond, a.k.a. Mike D., made up the rap-slash-rock-slash-hardcore-punk trio known as the Beastie Boys. After over a decade of hit records, each with their own unique identity, the NYC-based trio released perhaps their most eclectic album. Ill Communication introduced itself to the world in May of 1994. At just under 60 minutes, with 20 songs on the record, the album flows like a Ramones concert. The genius of the album stems from the effortless genre blending, combining rap-rock, hip-hop, funk, punk-rock, jazz, and experimentalism. It seems almost every song has its own distinct flavor, but just like Faith No More's classic Angel Dust, the diversity never compromises the authenticity of the group. The lyrics might not settle as the focal point for listeners, as many of the tracks feature distortion on the vocals, making it a little challenging to decipher the words. But it's certainly worthwhile checking them out, as lyrically, the album oscillates between Golden Age hip-hop-style playful boasting and socially conscious themes. In the vein of Golden Age hip-hop, the three MCs frequently drop references to pop culture as well as 60s and 70s funk and jazz musicians. The trio also demonstrates their leap in maturity from their license to ill days, speaking out against environmental abuse, racism, misogyny, and in favor of the Free Tibet movement. MCA also discusses the influence of Eastern spirituality on his approach to social interactions. The group continued the trend from their 1992 album, Check Your Head, of returning to their roots and playing their instruments. This musicianship is commendable throughout ill communication and perhaps most interesting during the album's seven solely instrumental tunes, in which they permit themselves to explore their experimentalism, most notably on Eugene's Lament and Shambala. Bolstered by the success of their aggressive punk rock lead single Sabotage, the record impressed both critics and fans, hitting number one on the Billboard Hot 200 albums chart and going on to sell 3.5 million copies. At the time of its release, the album received 4 out of 5 star ratings from Rolling Stone, Q Magazine, Select Magazine, and AllMusic. The positive reception only increased retrospectively with Pitchfork Media giving it a rating of 8.6 out of 10 in 2009. British music magazine Mojo ranked the album 54 on their list of 100 modern classics in 2006. Furthermore, Q Magazine, another British publication, included Ill Communication on their list of the 90 best albums of the 90s. Perhaps most importantly, a panel of music journalists and critics included it in the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. For me, I had the perception for the longest time that the Beastie Boys were just a group of funky white Jewish boys from New York that wrote catchy, silly songs that somehow possessed a fuck-ton of influence. I was right about their influence on hip-hop and rock music, and about the funky white Jewish boy thing, but dead wrong regarding the depth of their talent and musicianship, which Ill Communication set me straight on. As you can probably tell from the list of my favorite genres I shared earlier, I'm a sucker for genre fusions and genre diversity, which stands out as a major theme of ill communication. Also, in a year sadly missing a Tribe Tribe Called Quest album, Q-Tips feature on the record's seventh track, Get It Together, solidifies, at least in my mind, its status as an East Coast hip-hop classic, and fortunately, a rather funky one. For our next city, we'll have to Uber to JFK, as taking public transit would be a bit too ambitious. We'll intentionally grab a flight on Delta, because folks, we are headed to my stomping ground, the ATL. (music) To get to our first site, we'll take the MARTA to Buckhead, and then walk a half a mile or so to Lenox Square, the mall where Andre Benjamin and Antoine Patton met. These two teenagers, better known as Andre 3000 and Big Boy, respectively, subsequently created a hip-hop duo called Outkast and released their debut record, Southern Playlist at Cadillac Music, on April 26, 1994, and neither hip-hop nor the city of Atlanta has been the same ever since. Andre 3000 and Big Boy distanced themselves from East and West Coast hip-hop styles, employing live musicians to recreate the George Clinton era of funky soul, which served as the backbone to the album's essence, which they layered with lyricism, paying homage to their Southern culture, while also demonstrating their coming-of-age ethos with topics such as gun violence, partying with their friends, the realization of their need to make money, and ignoring gang violence through smoking weed. The album quickly became a hit, peaking at number 20 on the Billboard Hot 200 and number 3 on the R&B slash hip-hop album charts. The album's first single, Players Ball, hit number 37 on the Billboard Hot 100 and peaked at number 1 on the rap singles chart. Their second single, The Title Track, ended up on the Billboard Hot 100 and was a top 10 hit on the rap charts. Their third single, Get Up, Get Out, which featured another Atlanta hip-hop god, CeeLo Green, failed to make the Billboard Hot 100, but became a top 20 hit on the rap charts. Perhaps the most important moment in their exposure to the mainstream occurred in Manhattan on August 3rd, 1995 at the Source Awards, the award show done by the previously mentioned hip-hop magazine, The Source. They won the award for Best New Artist in the form of a group, since they beat out multiple New York-based acts. When the award was announced, the audience erupted into booze. While Big Boy appeared to ignore the negative reaction and gave a level headed speech, a clearly upset Andre 3000 communicated his disappointment with not only the audience, but also the hip hop community as a whole for largely dismissing their work. He then uttered 12 words that became a rallying cry for the city of Atlanta and Southern hip hop, saying, The South's got something to say. That's all I got to say. Critics heard the South. In Southern Playlist, Cadillac Music received 4 out of 5 star reviews from Rolling Stone and Allmusic, with the source giving it the same score of 4.5 mics that it awarded Biggie's debut. Retrospectively, Vibe magazine included the album on their list of 150 essential albums between the years 1992 and 2007. Another publication, Cleveland.com, ranked Southern Playlist Cadillac Music as the 45th greatest hip hop album of the 1990s. For me, and for perhaps the city of Atlanta, more than the quality of any individual track or even the greatness of the record as a sonic entity, the importance of this album rests on its influence on the perception of ATL as a player within the game of hip-hop. Previously, the city's hip-hop artists sporadically had pop hits, but weren't taken seriously when compared to the East Coast slash West Coast Titans. Southern Playlistic Cadillac Music changed that, opening the floodgates for other Atlanta-based hip-hop and R&B artists, one of which we will discuss shortly. Artists like Ludacris, T.I., Future, Killer Mike, Goody Mob, 21 Savage, B.O.B., and Usher took advantage of the road that OutKast paved with their debut record. For the next site we'll check out, we'll have to call an Uber because Atlanta's public transit sucks, and that's not even a hot take. The Uber will take us to Southwest Atlanta, where we'll pass Benjamin Elijah Hayes High School, the institution where Rosanda Thomas graduated in 1989. Thomas, better known by her stage name, Chili, made up the C in the legendary all-girl Atlanta-based R&B group, TLC. Along with Tiana Watkins, a.k.a. T-Boz, and Lisa Lopez, a.k.a. Left Eye, The three ATLians released their sophomore album, Crazy, Sexy, Cool, on November 15, 1994. TLC named the album to describe the personalities of the trio. Left Eye represented the crazy, chilly, the sexy, and T-Boss, the cool. In June of that year, Left Eye turned herself into the authorities after she burned down her boyfriend's house. As a result, she was sentenced to five years of probation and court-mandated rehab to deal with her alcoholism, prolonging the recording process, and in turn, diminishing her role in the album. On their previous album, Ooh, on the TLC tip, Left Eye's rapping presence dominating the record, steering the group towards a steady balance of hip-hop and R&B. My apologies, by the way, for butchering the coolness of that album's name. Anyways, with Left Eye's involuntary hiatus and her subsequent limited output, TLC compensated for her absence through smoothing out the energetic edges that she brought on their previous record with slower tempos, more incorporation of pop and jazz, as well as a dominant dose of hip-hop soul. The diverse songwriting team penned songs, mainly centering on the themes of love and intimacy, but also focused on somber topics such as infidelity, toxic friendships, addiction, the AIDS epidemic, and hopelessness in the face of current struggles. The album was a critical success and a commercial phenomenon. Although the album peaked at number three the summer after its release, it went on to sell over 15 million copies worldwide, making it the only album certified as Diamond from an all-girl group. The popularity of the record's four singles drove the album's success. Crazy Sexy Cool spawned two number one singles. One of them, perhaps TLC's signature song, and perhaps a top 10 greatest 90s song, the gut-wrenching, yet catchy, Waterfalls. One of the few songs on the album to feature Left Eyes rapping, Waterfalls spent seven weeks atop the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart, and it was listed at number two on Billboard's year-end charts. The other hit singles consisted of the iconic R&B classic, Creep the seductive Red Light Special, which features a Prince-like guitar solo, and the smooth love song sent from the pop gods, Diggin' On You. Critics found themselves agreeing with fans as Crazy Sexy Cool received a 5-star rating from AllMusic, a 4-star rating from The Guardian, and a B+ from Entertainment Weekly. Retrospectively, the album's legacy remains intact with a placement of 218 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums in 2020. Billboard ranked the album number 7 on their list of greatest album certified diamond, meaning 10 plus million copies sold. To put that into context, albums with lesser rankings include Appetite for Destruction, Dark Side of the Moon Rumors, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Additionally, in 2019, NPR ranked the album 26th on their list of greatest albums made by women. This has usually been the point where I point out the influence of the album and the artist. However, to convey the influence of Crazy Sexy Cool and TLC on R&B, popular music, and society as a whole, I would need a hell of a lot more time. So, in effort of communicating at least the tip of the iceberg of their influence, I will leave you with a quote from someone to TLC in 1999 who said to the group, quote, Thank you for letting us open up for y'all because that was the best time, one of the best times of my life. This quote happened because from the success of Crazy Sexy Cool, TLC garnered legions of fans eager to see them to see them perform. So when they released their follow-up album titled Fan Mail in 1999, this gave them an opportunity to not only share their music with the world but to give significant exposure to an opening act. For at least part of their North American tour, they featured an up-and-coming all-girl R&B group who had recently achieved their first of several number one hits. The group, Destiny's Child, and the person who made that gracious quote, Beyoncé. After passing through Southwest Atlanta, we'll head back to Hartsfield International and catch a flight to Cleveland, Ohio for our next stop. Upon arrival, we'll take another Uber, since taking public transit would more than triple our journey to our first and only site in Cleveland. After our drop-off, we'll take a look at the film building located at 216 Payne Avenue, which used to house the Right Track Studios, a recording studio where in the mid-1980s a young musician and computer science nerd named Trent Reznor worked as a janitor and handyman. This young musician took advantage of working at a recording studio, receiving discounts to record his own material during off-hours. He ultimately recorded a demo at Right Track Studios and sent it out to various record labels, ultimately signing with TVT Records and reworking many of the song's demos on his breakthrough debut album Pretty Hate Machine. If you're not familiar with the name Trent Reznor, maybe you've heard of his band, Nine Inch Nails, which is essentially all but a pseudonym for him. On March 8th, 1994, Nine Inch Nails released their second full-length studio album, The Downward Spiral, which Reznor described as a small-scale, personal, potentially ugly record that reflected how he felt. To call this album a masterpiece, while not untrue, would border on misleading. Da Vinci's The Mona Lisa is a masterpiece. Michelangelo's The David also considered as such. In music, songs like Guns N' Roses' November Rain* and Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody fit that term as well, as do the albums Abbey Road by the Beatles and Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid Mad City. But conveying the quality, status, legacy, texture, and boldness of the downward spiral cannot be condensed to a single word. The record is a lengthy collection of sounds, noises, and words, likely from outer space, that create existentially ominous imagery validating the often hidden internal dissonance within the human condition. The puzzling categorization of Nine Inch Nails as an alternative rock band lends itself to the aggression almost omnipresent throughout the record. The album is musically, and at times incoherent, yet always cohesive blend of drum loops, distorted guitars, samples, piercing synths, Ambient sounds, clanking percussion, and Reznor's deep and powerful quasi-whisper. Apparently, this fits into the textbook definition of the genre of industrial metal, but me personally, I think those elements are just the different parts that comprise Trent Reznor's complicated soul. Anyways, lyrically, The Downward Spiral is a concept album detailing the mental and physical deterioration of the character that Reznor voices. To help with inspiration in creating meaningfully morose and severe words, he wrote the album at the house where Charles Manson murdered Sharon Tate in 1969. At times, penning lyrics on the couch where Manson stole Tate's life. Reznor's method of inspiration paid off with themes including, brace yourself, please, nihilism, aggressive apathy, religious doubt in the face of societal ills such as the AIDS epidemic, misanthropy sexuality as an extension of self-loathing, loss of self-humanity, repetitive racing thoughts, self-harm, and drug addiction. Debate exists among the Nine Inch Nails fanbase as to whether the protagonist takes his own life at the end. But I ain't got time to weigh in on that. As you can imagine, the album was a critical and commercial success. The album debuted on the Billboard Hot 200 at number two and went on to sell over 3.7 million copies in the United States. The album featured four singles, two lead and two promotional. The biggest hits from the album included The Angry Introspection of Sex, titled Closer, which peaked at number 42 on the Billboard Hot 100, as well as the album's closer, Hurt a tune that, upon writing, Reznor stated, I've got one more. It may not work. It's a really sad song. It's definitely an album closer. I promised that I wouldn't mention Johnny Cash's cover of this song, so I won't. The album received solid reviews upon release, but retrospectively, critics regarded the album as amongst the greatest works in modern music history, with five-star reviews from AllMusic, the Encyclopedia of Popular Music, and Rolling Stone, as well as a 9 out of 10 rating from Pitchfork and Spin Magazine, neither publication an easy critic to please. Rolling Stone ranked the album 122 on their 2020 list of the 500 greatest albums, and in 2010, Spin ranked it number 10 on their list of the 125 best albums of the last 25 years. Well, that trip to Cleveland was certainly depressing, and we didn't even go to a Browns game. So to balance our mood, Our next site will center around an upbeat album by three chumps whose frontman probably stopped taking guitar lessons after learning power chords and likes to write about masturbation, smoking weed, and boredom. And those are just the themes of one of their songs. To get to this site, we'll have to fly to to the Northern California city of San Francisco and rent a car. We then will have to drive 45 minutes northeast to the census designated place of Crockett, the setting where two fifth graders Billy Joe Armstrong, and Mike Dern met and bonded over their love for Ozzy Osbourne. The two kids formed a band as teenagers named Sweet Children, which they changed to Green Day in 1989 to avoid confusion with the band Sweet Baby and also to celebrate their love of marijuana. In the Bay Area, a Green Day is a colloquialism for doing jack shit and smoking weed all day. The band solidified their lineup in 1990 with Armstrong on vocals and guitar, Dirt on bass, and Frank Edwin Wright III, better known as Trey Cool, on drums. The band released their major label debut, Dookie, on February 1st, 1994. The album took three weeks to record and features 15 songs in the instant gratification friendly length of 38 minutes. With the blend of crunchy power chords, blistering tempos, angsty yet relatable for mass appeal lyrics, catchy melodies, and the memorable timbre of Armstrong's vocals Dookie opened the floodgates for the mainstream acceptance of punk rock, thus ushering in the explosion of the rather oxymoronic genre label pop-punk. Armstrong wrote the lyrics for all songs minus two. There exists a dichotomy in the lyrics between self-loathing themes and introspective reflection. Armstrong employs the former largely via humor, sometimes dry, often self-deprecating, and even dark in one instance. On the introspective front, he details his reflections on his coming out as bisexual, the struggles that women face in obtaining their own autonomy, his anxiety, incompatibility in romantic interactions, and acclimating to one's surroundings and realities. Like TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool, Dookie received critical acclaim and was a commercial phenomenon. The album peaked at number two on the Billboard Hot 200, and to date has sold approximately 20 million copies worldwide, driven perhaps by the success of the record's five singles and the reputation of Green Day's live performances. Three of those singles hit number one on the rock charts. Amongst those include the hilarious bass-driven tune "Longview," as well as Basket Case, which became their second single to hit number one and is currently their most played track on Spotify. Perhaps their signature song, this tune marries the introspective themes of anxiety and paranoia with silly and humorous lyrics such as, quote, I went to a whore who said my life's a bore. I deem Basket Case the greatest pop punk song of all time, and while maybe on the warmer side, I wouldn't even say that's a hot take. The third single to hit number one. When I Come Around was their second-highest-selling single of the 1990s, behind only the 1997 stripped-down graduation anthem, Good Riddance. The band gained notoriety for their performance at Woodstock 94 when they engaged in a mud fight with the crowd, shedding light on their youthful exuberance. Critics love Dookie. It has received five-star reviews from Rolling Stone, Allmusic, and the Alternative Press. Rolling Stone ranked the album 375 on their 2020 list of the 500 greatest albums. In 2018, Louder Sound ranked Dookie 11 on their list of the greatest punk albums of all time. And in 2015, Kerrang! ranked it number two on their list of the greatest pop punk albums of all time. With regards specifically to pop punk, the success of Dookie opened the doors that allowed artists that millennials such as myself cherish to access the mainstream, such as Blink-182, The Offspring, Good Charlotte, Sum 41, and Fall Out Boy. For our next site, we'll drive about an hour northwest to get to the Phoenix Theater in Petaluma, California. This venue hosted the band 60 Wrong Sausages, first performance on November 29, 1991. If you've never heard of this artist, that's pretty much expected since the band only was active for three months and didn't even release the EP they were working on. However, in February of 1992, three of the members, drummer Patrick Wilson, guitarist-slash-backing vocalist Jason Cropper, and guitarist-slash-lead vocalist Rivers Cuomo regrouped and added their friend Matt Sharp to play bass, calling themselves Weezer after the nickname Rivers Cuomo's father gave him as a child. On May 10, 1994, Weezer released their self-titled debut LP, better known as The Blue Album, and forever changed the the trajectory of Indian emo rock. The album was recorded in Electric Lady Studios, the studio that Jimi Hendrix commissioned in 1968, and produced by the frontman of the Cars, Rick Okasek. One component of the Blue Album's beauty comes down to the inability to pigeonhole the record into one particular genre. Sure, the Blue Album's radio-friendly disposition with crunchy guitar may lead people to categorize it as pop rock, but a track-by-track listen eradicates that notion. Rather, the record predominantly falls closer to the alternative rock and power-pop genres, but also incorporates like a million other flavors, such as emo rock, indie rock, and pop-punk. Weezer also sprinkles the album with folk rock, doo-wop, metal, noise rock, shout-out to the sweater song, and I'm pretty sure I even heard some atonality on one song, shout-out again to the sweater song. I have to mention I got hella queen vibes on the album's penultimate song, Holiday. Lyrically, Rivers Cuomo's personality shines throughout with concise yet thoughtful lines that elicit clear messages. Some songs are autobiographical, while others metaphorical, in addition to those that are fictional but written in the first person. On the record, Cuomo wrestles with personal strife such as depression, unreasonable fears stemming from previous trauma, and the nostalgia that traumatic events cause. He also addresses societal ills such as the toxic masculinity within sexist relationship expectations and the consequences from being that asshole, as well as racist attempts to thwart friendships. But the record certainly isn't dark as a whole with songs about optimism, feeling secure from sentimental possessions, and the importance of having fun in life. Of course, not too much fun though. Like the majority of the albums discussed so far, the Blue album was a critical and commercial success. The album peaked at number 16 on the Billboard Hot 200 and spawned three hit singles, Buddy Holly, Say It Ain't So, and The Sweater Song, which I don't think I mentioned that last one yet. All three of those singles became top 10 hits on the rock charts, have become three of the most iconic 90s rock songs, and perhaps Weezer's three single most beloved tunes. I love those songs, but I don't think any of them is the best song on the album. That would be the record's closer, the eight minute crescendoed roller coaster only in dreams. Anyways, the album received a five star review from AllMusic, an A rating from Entertainment Weekly, and four star reviews from Rolling Stone, Q Magazine, and Blender. Rolling Stone ranked the album 294 on their 2020 list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. In 2003, Pitchfork Media ranked the album 26 on their list of the greatest albums of the 90s. Also, there's an article from Consequence of Sound with quotes from different artists that the Blue Album directly influenced. Not that I've heard of any of them, but I'm sure they're important. But yeah, Weezer fucking rocks. After a much-needed laid-back time in Northern California, it's time to head back to the San Francisco airport to drop off the rental car and catch a flight to our last city, Seattle, Washington. Upon arrival, to get to our first stop, we'll take the one-line train to Westlake Station and walk a half a mile or so to Belltown. This is the neighborhood that housed the rehearsal space in 1990 for the newly formed rock group Pearl Jam that contained veteran Seattle grunge rockers, guitarist Stone Gossard, and bassist Jeff Ament, along with local musicians Dave Cruson on drums and Mike McCready on guitar, cemented by the newly anointed surfer dude frontman from San Diego, Eddie Vedder. By 1994, Pearl Jam were already bona fide generational rock stars and a cultural phenomenon as one of the four major grunge artists, along with Nirvana, Alice in Chains, and another group we'll get to in a bit within the 90s alt-rock explosion. Their first two albums, Ten and Verses, achieved blockbuster success. On November 22nd, the quintet released their third studio album, Vitology. Although not escaping their grunge identity, the band traded their classic rock influences found on their first two records for a fiery punk rock sound. The angsty nature of Vitology borders on unhinged, only to be corralled by moments of sanity. The band's inner turmoil perhaps fueled the disposition of the record. The power dynamics of Pearl Jam had shifted to Vedder taking the reins. Communication issues between the band's second drummer, Dave Abruzizi, and other members resulted in him being canned at the end of the recording process, and Mike McCready decided to enter rehab for alcoholism. Add that to the already existing alienation and pressures the band felt from their unexpected gargantuan fame, and you get an explanation for the 55 unsettling but cathartic minutes of the record. As I mentioned, Pearl Pearl Jam refined their sound on Vitology to a cohesive blend of grunge and punk. But also, the album includes multiple ballads, a short funk interlude, a pop rock tune, experimentalism, and whatever the fuck you would call the intentionally abrasive accordion-filled song, Bugs. Underappreciated song, by the way. Analyzing the lyrics of Vitology wasn't quite as sobering as the downward spiral, but at times it shared similar spots on the spectrum. The themes of the album, with one exception, conveyed the gloom that Vedder experienced at the time. Many of the songs deal with the mental health detriments that the consequences of fame cause, as well as the omnipresence of fame's moving parts. He opines that the music industry filters art for commercial gains, that the media's constant violation of privacy is traumatic, and that fame diminishes genuine human connection and interaction. Vetter also touches on other topics pertinent to the human experience, such as the plight of addiction, the difficulties of ending abusive relationships, resisting temptation, and life's fleeting nature in the face of mortality. Better remains one of the all-time great rock lyricists, in my humble opinion, but for some reason, when reflecting on the lyrics of the album, the one line that always sticks out from the record's tenth track, quote, I'll never suck Satan's dick. We love you, Eddie better. Surprise, surprise, the album was a mega-hit, critically and commercially. Its vinyl sales the first week set a record that held for 20 years. When released in the format of CD and cassette, it debuted at number one. By the way, I'll give y'all a second to bask in the nostalgia for reconnecting with the word cassette. To date, the album has sold almost 5 million copies worldwide. In the most Pearl Jam way ever, of the album's three singles, the band had their first top 20 hit on the Billboard Hot 100 with Spin the Black Circle, a hardcore punk song. I've done no research to back this up, but that's probably the first and last time a song of that genre has been such a pop hit. Also in a very Pearl Jam way, Vitology's biggest hit on the rock chart was Better Man, a song they never even released as a single, but nonetheless stayed at number one on the rock charts for eight weeks. Critics received the album well with a 4 to 4 star rating from the LA Times. In addition, Vitology received a 4.5 at a 5 star review from AllMusic and a 4 star review from Rolling Stone & Q magazine. Rolling Stone included Vitology on their 2003 and 2012 lists for the 500 greatest albums, but left it out of their 2020 list for some stupid reason, probably. I don't think a list of the greatest Pearl Jam album exists that doesn't rank Vitology in the top three. Although it may not be their best, intentional or not, it easily takes the cake for their most badass, unique, and creative record. Well folks, we have finally made it to our last site, If you're still listening, thank you for sticking around and allowing me to ramble about ten of the most beautiful creation that the gods of music gifted us mere mortals. For our last stop, we are going again to take the one-line train down to U Station and walk a little less than half a mile to 722 Northeast 45th Street, where the Rainbow Tavern used to be located. At that venue on July 30th, 1985, a student from the University of Washington, Jonathan Poneman watched the young band Soundgarden perform, and thought the concert ranked among the best he had seen in his life. He eventually used that band to help catapult his indie record label, Sub Pop Records. Soundgarden's career spanned over a decade when on March 8, 1994, the same day as Nine Inch Nails released The Downward Spiral, they came out with their Magnus Opus and Breakthrough Record, their fourth studio album, Super Unknown. It's not a coincidence that I chose this album for our last trip. As amazing as the musicianship from each artist that I've discussed is, Super Unknown demonstrates the highest level of collective instrumental and technical skill of all of 1994's phenomenal albums. And off the top of my head, with the exception of Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, Super Unknown is the most solid rock album from start to finish in American music history. Along with Alice in Chains, Soundgarden made up the heavier wing of the big four grunge bands on their fourth studio album grunge hard rock and alternative metal take center stage although a significant presence of psychedelic rock provides provides the icing on the cake for the 70 minutes of tight professional music lyrically the album certainly won't warm your heart but in comparison with some other albums i've discussed the darkness present throughout super unknown stings less That's not to say that the record doesn't carry the rather gloomy, introspective ethos found within the grunge movement. As singer and lyricist, Chris Cornell writes songs about depression, innocence serving evil, and premature death. But the vagueness of Cornell's lyricism, likely on purpose, allows a certain mystery that distracts from the otherwise concerning words. Cornell also did the thing that John Lennon did with I Am The Walrus on one song, utilizing color, colorful words and phrases, but basically lacking an actual meaning. Cornell wrote one song as an ode to a street performer named Artiste the Spoonman, and also has a song basically saying, Do whatever you want, my dude. Just don't be an asshole to me. Come on. For a grunge songwriter, that's basically I'm Walking on Sunshine. Though when I listen to Super Unknown, I don't really listen too much to the lyrics, because... That would take away from the musicianship which ranks second to none. Chris Cornell's vocals shine throughout the album, especially on the singles Fell on Black Days and The Day I Try to Live, as he furthers the argument that he's among rock's all-time great singers. Matt Cameron's drumming reminds me of The Police's Stuart Copeland, focusing on intricate rhythms rather than indulgent fills, exemplified on tracks like Let Me Drown and Spoonman. And perhaps one of the most underrated guitarists of the 90s, Kim Thiel, selflessly showcases his chops in small doses, but his work on songs such as Like Suicide and the title track are brilliant. The album debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 200 and has sold over 9 million copies. The album spawned five singles, the most being their third, Black Hole Sun, which hit number one on the rock charts. I would say Black Hole Sun is easily a top-five all-time grunge tune, and probably their signature hit. Trippy-ass video, too. The retrospective accolades for Super Unknown are plentiful. Rolling Stone ranked the album 335 on their 2020 list of the 500 Greatest Albums list, Spin ranked it 70 on their list of the greatest albums of the 90s, and the Alternative Press ranked it 18th on their list of the greatest 90s albums. While maybe not my favorite album from 1994, very few rock albums have aged as gracefully as Super Unknown. Alright y'all, we did it. We went to 5 different states and visited 6 different cities, saw 11 11 different sites, and learned about 11 different albums. Thank you for sticking with me for the duration of the trip. I will end my tour reiterating the musical serendipity of 1994. It blows my mind that within a 12-month period, grunge, pop-punk, R&B, Southern Hip-Hop, East Coast Hip-Hop, Industrial Metal, Punk Rock, and Power Pop were able to coexist and see some of their most significant releases. These 11 albums sold approximately a combined 71 million copies and influenced some of the most important musicians of the 20th and 21st century, including Adele, Beyonce, the game Ghostface Killa, J. Cole... Jay-Z, Kendrick Lamar, Lana Del Rey, Logic, Matt Bellamy of Muse, Mob Deep, Nicki Minaj, Tom York of Radiohead, and members of the bands Taking Back Sunday, Yellow Card, and Newfound Glory. It's also worth noting the mysterious but poetic parallels of this year. For example, in 1994, both Jeff Buckley and Biggie Smalls released albums with the title track being about the readiness to accept their mortality, and both of them died prematurely in 1997. Both Eddie Vedder and Trent Reznor endured mental health struggles and communicated beautifully through experimental and bold means, lyrically and musically, and both were met with critical acclaim. And while from completely different social, musical, and geographical locations, both TLC and Nine Inch Nails touched beautifully in their own artistic way about the tragedy of the AIDS epidemic. In combination with the production shops, Instrumental skill, vocal prowess, powerful lyrics, and meaningful hits, these intangibles foster that enduring relationship with listeners that my music professor highlighted all those years ago, and thus elevate that year to a special place within popular musical lore and make it the greatest year for music since at least 1990. Everyone needs a friend to call them out on their shenanigans. Luckily, I have multiple. My guest today is one of them, probably the world's biggest Taylor Swift fan to name their dog after Waylon Jennings. She's an interior designer and one of the funniest people you'll ever meet. Her husband always brings the world's best buffalo chicken dip to the party, but she's the reason he's invited in the first place. Please welcome Ella Hyder.
1: Hi, Dove.
0: So, how are you doing?
1: doing good? Doing good?
0: So you were just in New Orleans, right?
1: I was, yeah.
0: And we talked a little bit about it, but I didn't ask you, did you get to go to like any jazz or funk clubs when you were there?
1: Uh, not this time. We've been to a couple of jazz shows there in the past and they're always like, you know, otherworldly good. Um, no, this time we were there for Mardi Gras and there are actually in the parades there are uh floats where it's just like a full band like just sitting in a little trailer like playing music while, while they walk or while they like drive by
0: what kind of music were they playing
1: usually jazz. jazz jazz funk all kinds of stuff the good stuff the good stuff
0: the good stuff all right we'll get we'll get right into it so as right now 2023 february whatever month we're in what kind of music do you listen to like most currently
1: um well as i know you're aware taylor swift put out an album about two months ago uh,
0: Who's Taylor Swift? I'm not, I'm not familiar with this artist.
1: <laughs> okay, podcast over. <laughs> uh, no, uh, Taylor Swift put out "Midnights" a few months ago, and that's been pretty much on loop. Um, but I also like, you know, Father John Misty shows up on pretty much every playlist. A lot of like alt rock, indie rock, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, yeah, that's the Taylor Swift's a big one. I'm I'm sorry to say. I know you're disappointed. Uh, no,
0: I, I, you know, I like her a lot more since I saw that interview of her on like was it Jimmy Fallon and like she just seemed like so awkward. I just like related to her so much.
1: That's what I'm saying. And
0: so I, I do, I, I will. Um at some point give her music more of a more of a listen and you know because I used to listen to her early stuff which I'm fairly familiar with but I don't really know much since like 2011 so
1: oh you're missing out I,
0: I, I know I am I, 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 will, I will check it out and that and you'll be the first person that I, I tell <laughs> about unless I don't like it then I won't tell you um, <laughs> so what kind of music were you spoon-fed as a child
1: um well so as a kid I mean I know you mentioned this already but my my Waylon Jennings is a big was big for me growing up. Um, and you and I have talked about this before, but like the Highwaymen, that whole group, mm-hmm. Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, Chris that whole that whole gang. My dad really um, played a lot of them on the way to school and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> he also had the essential Billy Joel. So we listened to a lot of Billy Joel. Love that. Uh, and then actually this weekend, on our way down to New Orleans, I showed Nick uh, the Battle of New Orleans. That song, it's... It's a real, it's a story song. Um, and it came from another CD that my dad played pretty much. The
0: Battle of New Orleans. I remember that uh, reading about, or learning about that in, in uh, US and AP US history. Yeah, yeah. That, that that was wild. This is not a history podcast, so I'm not going to expand on that. But uh, who did you say the artist was for the Battle of New Orleans?
1: Oh, I cannot remember. It's it's like a really folksy song, like, uh, and banjo and everything. Yeah. It's a whole, it's a vibe. For sure. And I also don't know, I don't think we've ever talked about this, but my mom's side of the family is, like, very musical as well. And my uncle has been in, like, several bluegrass bands, and, like, that whole side of the family is very into bluegrass, so that was also something that came up a lot in our um, childhood, or in my childhood.
0: You know, bluegrass, I never really, like, got into it, but anytime I hear a bluegrass song, I always enjoy it. Oh, you know? man.
1: Yeah. it's a It's, like, a very skillful uh, genre, which, like... You don't think about that part of it, but it's a lot of a lot of bluegrass artists are like musical geniuses. Oh yeah, well the
0: banjo is not an easy instrument.
1: No, I mean I've never tried, but I imagine it's probably. I, 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 I've
0: tried. I didn't do very well. It's uh, I think the best that I did. They have like banjo guitars, so you have that feel, but it's like it, it <laughs> feels just very disingenuous. I can't ever do it again. Um, but when did you start to discover music on your own?
1: Um. Well, I have an older sister, and she is she's two years older than me and she was always really into uh, like kind of like finding her own stuff. And like that was like a big like feeling like I was like impressing her with music was always like really important to me. And so like I started like finding my own stuff. In probably like fifth or sixth grade because like, that's also when like LimeWire and like iTunes is really <laughs> taking hold um, and so like burning CDs was huge and I think one year for Christmas like in fifth grade or sixth grade I burned all my friends CDs for their Christmas presents very fun Um, but yeah that was probably when I started like branching out a lot was like once like I would say like early middle school like just getting on like anytime there was like a song and a soundtrack that I really liked I would like immediately go look it up um, songs in books that was I remember Gossip Girl the books had like some songs in it. And wait, I would wait, go wait, find wait. Them. songs
0: in books. I'm so, telling you. So do they like do like when you bought this the the book was there like the CD that came with no. it like on the front cover?
1: No, I remember this is listen okay Gossip Girl the book this was a book series before it was a TV show people don't talk about that but it's actually really good <laughs> or at least twelve year old Ella thought it was really good I don't know I haven't I haven't revisited but um and they talk about at one point. Nate Archibald, like, laying on his couch and listening to an Arctic Monkeys song. And I was obsessed with Nate Archibald. And I was like, ooh, got to go look up who the Arctic Monkeys are. And I was again, I was like 12. So like, I think the that was in 2006. So that's like when their biggest album came out. Like, yeah, so
0: got it, got it. So it was songs referenced in the books.
1: Yes. Yeah. Reference, not songs from books. Yeah.
0: Got it. And um, so when you started to discover uh, this music, I know you mentioned Arctic Monkeys. Um, what was, in addition to them, what kind of other music did you start to get into during that time?
1: Uh, that was really, like, intro to alt-rock, intro to indie rock in my life, was, like, them, The Shins, The Kooks, that was a really big- Oh, The Kooks! I was obsessed, I love them so much. Um, I love The Kooks. And then at the same time, like, I was really into, like, The Beatles and, like, some classic rock. Like, uh, Mary Grace was really into- my sister was very into Guns N' Roses. Uh, and so that had a big you know, influence on my life you as know, well.
0: In the monologue, I talked about Guns N' Roses. I mentioned them three times. They did nothing in nineteen ninety four that I know <laughs> of. I think they might have like made a couple covers,
1: except influence everything. That's true. <laughs>
0: that's true. But we'll we'll we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but and anything else?
1: From- uh, that's mostly it. I think I really wasn't like I wasn't a big hip hop person at the time. Like I wasn't really um, I wasn't really doing anything like that or or country music or anything like that. Just kind of like. Listening to what my dad was playing in the car and then finding other alt rock. Yeah.
0: You know, you mentioned place. the Kooks and I think like their significance in my life and they're like their mark. They were the first band I ever saw at a music festival. No way. Yeah. I saw them. My first music festival was uh, Bonnaroo in 2012. And I went with my friend Alejandro, and it was like, it was so hot. It was noon on a, like a, uh, like a Friday morning in like June in Tennessee at Bonnaroo. And it was so hot, but the kooks, they killed it.
1: Of course they did. They're amazing. Luke Pritchard, his voice is like, I I was just always obsessed with him. I think he's so cool. Oh no they're awesome.
0: Um, yeah. All right, so let's get into the, the meat, if you will, of <laughs> of, of this episode. Um, uh, you know, critiquing, uh, if you will, my hot take. So what do you think are the requirements and qualifications to be anointed as the the best year for music since 1990.
1: So I thought about this a lot after um, you told me about this idea, um, and I feel like, to me, the best year in music. I mean, first of all, very hard to say.
0: No, no, I'm not talking about, like the 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 year itself. Like we'll get to that, but like, how would you like
1: the criteria? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, okay, yeah. I think it's like near impossible. So I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know if I told you I did this, but um, Nick, again, my husband, data analyst, and I was like, hey, like let's take the data from the top 500 albums, of like the Rolling Stone list or whatever. Which like, I know they're not the end all be all, but they are like, you know, usually a pretty good like aggregate of, yeah. of popular opinion. Oh no, I
0: mentioned them throughout the monologue. Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. So we took the top 500 list, and 1994 is totally up there. I just like, um, it's just it falls a lot once you do like the top 100 like it, it was like third i think in the top 500 just by you know volume of albums that came out that year mm-hmm. that are on that list but then once you knock it down to the top 100 it's like like 15th or something it's, it's wild mm-hmm. um so my so my thought is the best year in music would have to be a year that like well at least since 1990 right is that wherever like it would yeah. have to be it would have to cover a lot of genres right Mm -hmm. I think it would have to have a lot of like groundbreaking artists like best albums. So like, even if you have a year like 1994 that has a billion, you know, different types of genres and different types of albums, you might not have like those artists' best album if that makes sense. So in my opinion, it has to be a year that has more of the best artists' best albums. Got it. And I know that that's like all kind of subjective as well. Right. So that's,
0: you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, music is subjective. You know, it's, I mean, how do you quantify, I mean, unless you're like actually studying, um, you know, the music theory of different, I mean, how do you quantify it? Um, but anyways, so getting to 1994, um, before I told you um, the list of albums that I would discuss for the, um, the episode, which of these albums were you familiar with? Because I know that you did listen to some, um, that you were unfamiliar with. Were there any that you were you had already listened to?
1: Oh, totally. Um, really just a few uh, from the list that you gave me. Um, the Blue Album, for sure. I mean, that I actually, <laughs> I don't know if I've told you this before. Um, I, when I was like 13 or 12 or 13, still in the CD burning phase, um, I traded my friend's older brother my Good Charlotte CD um, my like so that he could burn a copy of it. And in exchange, he burned me a copy of his Blue Album. <laughs>
0: That is amazing.
1: Yeah, very nice. I 90s. love that. It was a very well. You
0: remember from the last episode I talked about? That's the significance of that album. I mean, that was yeah. also. I didn't. I didn't mention this, but in the in my third grade talent show, I danced to a uh, "Lifestyles of the Rich and the Goodbye. Famous." I'm leaving. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was a really cool eight year old. Um, um, <laughs>
1: that was the first CD I ever bought. The purchased with my own money. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that
0: is amazing. That is. Am- I'm trying to think. What was the- oh, well. With my I can't own, remember the name of it. With my own money. I don't even, I don't remember that. I do remember, like, the first album that I ever, that I ever got, that I ever was like, I want this, and then, you know, I got it, was InSync's mm-hmm. um, uh, No Strings Attached.
1: Oh, yes.
0: It was Class, wow. We were, we were, um, we were driving, it was when I was living in New York, we were driving to visit my grandparents in Florida, and we stopped off at, like, a, you know, one of those, you know, service stations or whatever, um, those rest stops, and they had a vending machine with cassette tapes. Oh. Huh. And... I got insignia synch- no strings attached
1: oh, on cassette on cassette amazing wow, it's the most 90s story I've ever heard.
0: <laughs> Cassettes yeah.
1: were not around for very long. that was like a they were like a blip between like eight tracks and CDs I feel like yeah I mean i
0: I don't really remember when they would probably the mid 90s is when they were I guess most popular
1: yeah we had um Steve Martin's getting small on cassette. And that's the only cassette I can remember. That's amazing.
0: Steve, Mar- Steve Martin, the, the comedian. The comedian. Yeah. Okay. Speaking
1: of a great banjo player, also. Yeah, he
0: is. He's a great he's musician.
1: Yeah. Um. But yeah, back to your question. Sorry. Um. Blue album is really, really solid. Dookie, of course. I feel like everybody knows that album. Um. Mm-hmm. And then. Vitology. Vitology. Yeah. Those are the big ones. Um. And then and Crazy, Sexy, Cool, because I feel like that's just like. Yeah. Got so many like. 90s yeah. Well, anthems. you're in Atlanta.
0: You got to know that album. <laughs> Um, and I know you mentioned that like the Blue Album has been with you for a long time and I assume you're quite the fan of Dookie were any of those amongst your like all time favorites or are they just like oh I, I enjoy that album
1: uh, probably the Blue Album I think I mean I wouldn't say like all time favorites cause I'm not like cause I have like a recency bias like mm-hmm. in my head all the time um, so like in 1999 I probably would have been like oh yeah Blue Album Dookie all like the best albums of all time but like now I'm like We've like improved on those, I think. Um, so, no, not my top all time. Wait, wait, wait!
0: We've improved on the blue album.
1: I mean, those we are... got the green album, <laughs>
0: <laughs> or, or the teal album. Apparently, they have like something called the teal album. Yes,
1: and it's amazing. It's just yeah. a bunch of covers of like super white songs. It's very funny.
0: Um, have you seen? And uh, Ryan, uh, we have a fr- oh, Ryan. He was the the guest host on our, um, our first episode. Uh, he sent me the the video of the Weezer uh, SNL. Um, skit? Have you seen that?
1: Oh my god, no, I
0: haven't. It is like as soon as you get home, it's a must-watch. Actually, no. <laughs> okay. When when we're done with this, I'm playing. Okay, like you're gonna. W- it is. It's one of my favorite um, SNL skits, and I think other than more cowbell, the best music-themed skit. It's Ooh. it's unbelievable.
1: All right, big claim.
0: Um, but all right. So I know that like you, there was probably like a bunch of these albums that you listened to for the first time, right? Yeah. Um, were there any that you listened to that you like really liked?
1: yeah um the outcast album i southern playalistic cadillac music is that right good memory yep. thank you i was kept saying super playalistic um <laughs> yeah i really liked it because it, it, for some reason it just makes me go super california <laughs> every time um but yeah i i really liked it i will say like you said we live in atlanta and i was driving through like a very wealthy part of Sandy Springs like listening to this Outkast mm-hmm. album about like the trials and tribulations of growing up in Atlanta and I was like this is not what this is meant for <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is not for this is not meant yeah. for me but, <laughs> but, but you but you're blessing
0: them in Atlanta and that's yes, what's important and that's what
1: counts yeah I really did love it though that was that was um. so rad
0: so I'm gonna ask this question, and I'm gonna ask a follow up question—not a follow up question, but another question. Because any albums discussed that you dislike. Now, before you answer that, I'm gonna make a guess <laughs> that you did not like the Downward Spiral. I did not. <laughs> I listened to that album, and then I was like, "Man, this album is amazing and phenomenal." Like, yeah, there is no way that Ella, who says that Alison Chains is too
1: too heavy, too heavy, is gonna
0: like is gonna like that album.
1: No, I think I got enough uh enough darkness in my own brain <laughs> I don't need anybody else to try and add to it but I will say I I also just like I don't know I think like um just like sonically I have a lot of like 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 sensitivities I guess I don't mm-hmm. know so anytime music's like meant to be played anything's meant to be played really loud like oh man this is not for me like yeah. I, I totally respect that it was like a huge mm-hmm. you know part of music history or yeah. whatever but I just like for me I'm like you know what, let's listen to some Iron and Wine, you know? <laughs> Where's the acoustic guitar? <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, no, it's funny because like, you know, I'm not going to, I'm never going to just choose like casually like, hey, I'm, I've got five minutes to kill. Why don't I listen to something from the Downward Spiral? <laughs> you know, but like listening and like studying it, um, especially studying the lyrics and, and it, it is, I mean, it, it's amazing, but um, but I definitely, I can definitely understand that album being difficult to really get into. Yeah. Um, any, and anything up besides the downward spiral?
1: Um, no, I I mean, I'm not like, I'm not huge on 90s hip hop. I did like, I loved the, I loved the Outkast album, mm-hmm. B- Notorious B.I.G. has never been like my favorite. Yeah. But I do recognize that that's like a groundbreaking, like really beautiful album, really yeah. well done. Um, yeah no the rest of them yeah. the re- I really like the rest of them you did have an Alice in Chains uh, album on there originally. yeah we're, yeah
0: we're we're gonna get to there we'll okay. get to that in a second yeah yeah um so that's a good I guess transition what about um the honorable mentions um that I didn't end up going in depth about any of them that you really liked or disliked
1: um I was bummed you took the Oasis album off I can't remember the name of it
0: uh, definitely maybe
1: yeah there you go I really I really like that one and then is the did you talk about the Beastie Boys
0: yeah ill communication that that yeah, made yeah. that made the uh, cut
1: let me put that on my Original, Yes, I really liked it. I've never really listened to it other than uh, Sabotage and like a couple other bigger songs. But I listened to, I actually listened through it like last night and I was like, damn, this is really good. Those guys are so crazy.
0: And they're, and the, just, I didn't realize the depth of their musicianship because I think like a lot of people prior to really getting into ill communication, you know, I just kind of thought they were the, you know, fight for your right to party guys. Like they made like these really kind of unique sounding hip hop songs. Um, but the depth of their musicianship is really unbelievable. And, like, the fact they had like, Q-tip of, like, a Tribe Called I Quest know. in there.
1: That was honestly, like, jarring. For a second, I was like, this is not any of the Beastie Boys, right? Like, there's no way. And then it got to a certain part of the song, and I was like, that cannot be. That cannot be any of the Beastie Boys. Yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah, that was really, I was like, oh, my God, that's the guy from Tribe. Yeah, that was awesome.
0: yeah. Um, oh, okay, because I know that, uh, and it, you were, um, gonna mention the Alice in Chains.
1: Yes, yeah, I, um, I did. I gave it, I gave it a go, man. I gave it my all. Um, you didn't like I just, it? no, I am, I, I, it's just too heavy for me. That's the only thing. Really?
0: Even an acoustic album?
1: Yeah, it's just a little too dark. That's It is. The only... That was
0: the thing. It's, it's really dark. And I didn't realize that. So are you not crazy about, like, dark lyricism or?
1: I like sad songs. I do. Like, I, I can, I can mess around with a Phoebe Bridgers song, but, um, there's something about like a guy talking about being like really angry and really like sad that for some reason like it just if it's like really like if there's like a tone of anger to it it gets it, it gets hits my brain the wrong way. Yeah, like, I
0: got to revisit that because I don't I'm I'm not quite sure the tracks you're talking to uh referring to, but I I don't but because I didn't actually do a deep dive I'm a deep dive, I don't um like I'm not familiar too much with the lyrics. Um, it's more that there's, like, uh, No Excuses um, and Nutshell. Those are just, like, the like two of the songs that I just think are just brilliant. Um, do you remember any of the either of those songs, or?
1: Uh, I'm not, like, no particularly.
0: Yeah, because, like, I think, like, so No Excuses is about Lane Staley's, well, both is about, like, his drug addiction. Um, and it's, like, kind of the, it's... I think Jerry Cantrell wrote it, the, the guitarist, and he was just like, dude, you need to get your shit together. Like,
1: yeah, <laughs> fair enough.
0: Um, so I do appreciate that. And the nutshell, I think Rolling Stone made a list of the 10 saddest songs of all time, and that was on that. Oh,
1: my God. I just don't understand why everybody can't write about issues of drug use like Anthony Kiedis, you know? <laughs> like, why can't we all just have a little fun with it? It's true. <laughs> Let's talk about our mental health issues in a way that everybody can dance to.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Love that. Um, you, yeah I think um, anyways um, so forgetting an alternative year what about what do you think about 1994 disqualifies it from the title that I have given it
1: well okay if if this were us at a bar talking about this without a microphone I would have a lot of words but I think that in the most like you know um, neutral way I think if you're not a 90s stan, like yourself, if you're not like, because the 90s are such a distinct and isolated decade, like, they. I don't think that there's the styles of 90s hip hop, 90s rock, ni- like grunge, all that stuff that kind of like, burst onto the scene at the beginning of the 90s, and then kind of like, completely transitioned to something else by the time 2000 rolled around. If you're not a fan of that sound, like, there is nothing in 1994 that you're gonna enjoy you know what I mean like I feel like well I'm not nothing that's a broad broad brush but I feel like if you don't if the 90s if the 90s sound isn't your thing it's gonna be hard for you to kind of find something that you're like oh yeah this is all-time one of my favorite albums
0: you know I I um. I, I hear you. I'm gonna push back a little bit because I think that, and I agree. You certainly have those. in Nineteen ninety four. You have like a lot of alternative rock albums. So if you're not really into, you know, pop punk or whatever the fuck Weezer is,
1: <laughs> white um, nerd or, rock, <laughs> or,
0: or or grunge, like I, I can see that. But I think there's just so much. There's so many other like flavors from that year. You know, you have like you know Tejano music and, and Selena's best. I mean, highest I mean, acclaimed yes, album absolutely. from that year. Um, and then you have obviously TLC and then you have like two of like, I mean, it's not even like arguably, but it's two of the greatest hip hop albums of all time. So I definitely think that there's like that there's variety. And then you have, did you listen to Grace by Jeff Buckley, by the way? Yeah, of
1: course. Like, oh, I should say that. I'm sorry. I forgot to add that yeah. on the list of things I was already kind of familiar with.
0: No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's it. Oh, just, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, and like for me, that album is just like from Mars. I mean, just, you yeah. know, it, it,
1: it's like what Muse wants to be. <laughs> like, yeah.
0: Well, um, anyway, so uh, now now it's time for I'm really excited to hear about this, uh, about um, your best year for music. I know you mentioned it briefly to me, so I'm really excited to hear about it because I actually love this year, too.
1: Okay. And okay. Uh, so
0: and I, and I and I found something I want to share with you. But first, Ooh. what year would you say was better for music in terms of releases? So, and and meaning what what would you crown as the best year for music since 1990?
1: Well, remembering that music is obviously like opinion-based and subjective to an extent, I would go 2016. And the reason why is because I feel like you get a lot of like if you want to go like diverse, like variety, you know, like a genre wise, um, lyricism theme wise, like thematically you get, it runs the gamut. Um, and I think you get some artists and I don't want to, you know, hang my whole argument on one, album, but Lemonade was released. and so I
0: am so happy you mentioned that. Why? I have thought up the response because do you know who Beyonce is like her biggest, not her biggest, but an incredible influence that she has been on the record stating? In TLC. TLC. Of course. she's and, in who, and, their, and their biggest album, highest acclaimed album, most successful album, Crazy Sexy Cool. So it's like, do you have Lemonade without Crazy Sexy Cool? So
1: I would argue, probably not in the extent that, to the extent that you have it, but you also, I mean like do you have crazy sexy cool without a tribe called quest like do you have you know do you have tlc without the like the artist that preceded them you know like i I, I do agree
0: that tribe and i and i mentioned in the monologue we do we are missing tribe in 94 and it is it's they, like Listen. literally every single year in like the first half of the 90s tribe put out now but 94 they're like no
1: i uh felt the same way about taylor swift in 2016. <laughs> I was like, dang, this is like the one year of this decade she didn't put out an album. Well, I,
0: I was going over when you said 2016. I was looking over like the different album releases, and I was like, huh, that's weird. I don't see any, any Taylor Swift.
1: No, she was under under the radar uh, working on Reputation, which she released the next year. Speaking of groundbreaking albums,
0: what kind of me Reputation? I haven't heard of that. What, 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 uh, Dove, you might what, actually
1: like this one. What
0: what what uh, what's the big hit from that album?
1: Uh, I mean, there's a lot, but uh, Bad Blow... Or no, sorry, Bad Blow was 1989. It's. Uh, she did Look What You Made Me Do um, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things I'm trying to think of what end game was like the was one of the singles um, you might actually enjoy that one Delicate was the big single that's the one that came gotcha. out of that one but it's like a darker it's actually a darker album for her believe gotcha. it or not it was after uh, Kim posted all of the phone call stuff with oh. Kanye she like went yeah. went silent for like three years or two years listen I was
0: when I heard that for the first time that, that song about like you know I made Taylor famous. Um, I was like, that's messed up." Yeah. And then my friend was like, "Was like, no, Dove, don't worry." Uh, he he consulted Taylor before, and she said she was okay with it. And I was like, "That? Oh, okay, all right." You know. <laughs> and then I've I've read a, a bit about that, and that was not the case. But, yeah, um, I have.
1: I go back and forth on, on that whole situation. I don't think anybody's really in the right there.
0: Yeah. Um. So what are, I know you mentioned Lemonade, but what are some of your favorite, uh, albums eat, like perhaps EPs or just like songs from, from 2016?
1: Um, so Lemonade, obviously mm-hmm. groundbreaking that. Okay. So I'm just going to go on a little diatribe please, for just a moment. Please, Lemonade didn't just redefine like, like female hip hop or female R and B or whatever you want to call Beyonce. Cause she kind of transcends genre. Right. that album was like everything it was every single genre in a, in a single album she had jack white on there father john misty ezra koenig like the whole the whole thing um i'm pretty sure she had the weekend and uh james blake is on a song kendrick's on a song i mean it's next level to yeah. be
0: fair though if you're a hit in 2016 and you don't have the weekend on your record what are you
1: oh he released an album and i i'm I understand why people like him. I just, he's not my biggest, He's not
0: your cup of tea. He's catchy. Yeah, his,
1: yeah, yeah. his stuff's catchy. I, I appreciate it. I just, you know, if I'm going to go seek out music, it's not, Yeah. that's not the first guy I think of. Um, But Blonde by Frank Ocean was released mm-hmm. in 2016 as well. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the others. Joanne by Lady Gaga, which was like her acoustic album. It's so beautiful. I think it's like the best um, example of her vocal range and like what she can do. And it doesn't have all of like the, um, you know, flares and flash of like some of her previous albums. Um, I don't know where my phone is, but I have a list of, of albums. Well, I wanted, I wanted
0: to share this with you, and I remembered. So, um, something that I talk about in the monologue um, is that my friends and I, at the end of every year, now it's been, you know, when you have a full-time job and different responsibilities, it's, it's hard to continue this tradition, but we have a tradition, my friends from high school, of at the end of every year making a list of our favorite albums from that year um and 2016 i uh got real into it so i wanted to review (laughs) my my 2016 list for my favorite albums and songs yeah please do so my albums um do you want me to do it uh descending or ascending
1: uh descending okay or wait no ascending okay one last
0: okay so um so for albums or songs first
1: uh, do Albums first. I'm okay. Really, I'm curious.
0: So, Albums was a shaped pool at number 10, Radiohead.
1: Oh.
0: Um, Number nine was California by Blink-182. Okay. Number eight. Wow, I put this at number eight. The Getaway by the Red Hot Chili Peppers.
1: Wow. That's huge for you.
0: Yeah, but Frusciante's not on the record, Fine. so. you
1: know.
0: <laughs> Lovers and Leavers. Have you heard of Hayes Carl before?
1: Uh-uh.
0: Oh, you would love him. He's so good. Okay. Really good singer-songwriter. For Your Eyes Only by J. Cole. Yeah. Um, that's one
1: of next. Have you favorites heard of Mason all? Jennings before? Of course.
0: Yeah, so I had Wild Dark Metal by Mason Jennings, and then uh, oh, shout out to to uh, Atlanta Run the Jewels Three.
1: Oh, so good.
0: Um, I got uh, We Got It From Here. Thank you for your service. A tribe called Quest. Beautiful. Uh, number two, Blonde, and then you. This is a hot take, but I think you'll appreciate it. A Sailor's Guide to Earth by Sergil Simpson.
1: Really, that's your number one. Lemonade yeah. is not on that list of.
0: Is that was a problem? I was not a made made because I was like on the the latter half of twenty sixteen, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess so.
0: Yeah, and no, no, nobody, nobody told me about that. <laughs> it wasn't until like until you're like, hey, Dub, you know that uh, Father John Missy's on Lemonade, and I was like,
1: oh yeah, he's somewhere. like on it, but like yeah. he's really just like a, no, a writer I, on it.
0: I when I heard that, I was like, this is this is brilliant. So that's that's my bad for for not being aware of that when it came out. Uh, yeah. My songs were i had a drake song shout out uh Which i had one? one one dance oh of
1: course oh, wait is that that's from views right views from the six
0: i don't know it's the it's the picture it's another thing Album cover on, like, is, like, the,
1: on the space needle yeah that's yeah Or yeah. not the space needle whatever um had
0: neighbors by j cole yeah um uh sick love by the chili peppers wow uh, i have love yourself by justin bieber bye who let me write this
1: you this is this has dove written all over it go it was on true
0: that's that was a problem no you know the story have I told you the story about when i first heard love yourself by justin bieber for the first time have I told you that story? No. oh my god so i was i was in i was visiting my friends uh zach in spain um this was before i lived there and he, th- that was the trip that solidified you know my interest in moving there for a year um and i was visiting my friend zach and uh, when i landed i was like walking through um the terminal and I heard this song, and I thought it was hilarious. It was just like, uh, it was just like an electric guitar and like a vocalist. I was yeah. like, And this is like awesome. And then like it was really catchy. And like when my friend picked me up at the airport, I was like, dude, I heard the song. Like I was walking through the terminal, and it was like super catchy. And I started singing some of like you know the lines. And he goes, yeah, Dove, that's Justin Bieber. <laughs>
1: And in that moment, Duff's ego exploded.
0: Yeah, uh, I was like, there goes the last of my self-dignity. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But number six, I have Called Ticketron by Run the Jewels. Of Run the Jewels 3. I have uh, uh, number five, Between the Lines, Sturgill. Oh, good. Um, Number four, I've got We the People.
1: All right.
0: And number three, again, I don't know who let me write this, but I have, uh, do you remember Campaign Speech by Eminem? It was like a seven-minute political freestyle. It's actually really
1: good. No, I I I will listen to anything by him though. He's so good. I'm oh yeah,
0: just, yeah, he's great.
1: Everything's so just so clever, so catchy.
0: I got I got to do an Eminem episode. That's that's for idea. sure. Um, number two. Well, your your husband said he wa- He would. He wanted to be the guest host for that one.
1: He'd do it. Yeah, he loves um, Eminem.
0: Yeah. Uh, number two, solo by Frank Ocean.
1: Mmm, so good. I was just listening to that in the car on the way here.
0: <laughs> uh, oh, that's such a great song. And then number one, because I and that's. Maybe that'll be another hot take episode. Channel Orange versus uh
1: versus Blonde.
0: Versus Blonde. That's hard. Yeah. And then number one I have uh, by Mason a song by Mason Jennings when it's real. It's like for me the lyrics are unbelievable. Yeah. So that's my that's that's my take on twenty sixteen. And so I like I said, I think it's a great year. I just, you know, none maybe a few of those albums I would like rank amongst my favorite, but like the the, the quantity of from ninety four surpasses that for me. Um, so my last question: When we're talking about nineteen uh, ninety four versus twenty sixteen, what does twenty sixteen have that ninety four is missing?
1: Uh, a Bowie album <laughs>
0: <laughs> and a Leonard Cohen album. Actually, Leonard Cohen might have come out with something in ninety four. I'm sure
1: he did. No, yeah. The I, I think one of the things I did not mention this earlier, but the Black Star album from Bowie. Like, I'm sure he put out albums throughout like the late '90s, the mid to late '90s as well. Um, and then, but, like, I, Black Star has to be one of his best albums, in my opinion. Like, I just think it was, like, so haunting. And I think they released it posthumously as well. Like, I think he was dead before they released it. Black Star? Yeah.
0: You know, it's interesting, and and that's another another thing that I, I need to get into. After I listen to Taylor Swift's discography three Thank you. times, yeah. I need to get more into David Bowie, because I've only really scratched the surface with him.
1: I'm... I love him. I um, I'm that's a, a you know basic thing to say. I feel like everybody loves David Bowie, but I think Black Star. I feel like he put out you know, he put out his like crazy amazing hits and and really just like, you know I hate to use word groundbreaking again, but groundbreaking albums in like the 70s and and early 80s, but then kind of went. I mean, and I don't know because I wasn't alive then, but like you know late 80s and 90s, it kind of seems like his discography kind of fell off. Um, but the when Black Star was released, I was like oh, man, this is, like, a guy who's just, like, waiting to die. Like, it is so beautiful and haunting and just, it's amazing. And I feel well, like... Well, yeah,
0: a couple... It's interesting, like, three things that you said right there reminded me of Johnny Cash. So can yeah. I can I bring up Johnny Cash?
1: Please do. Because you what we'll you said there Johnny is, Cash.
0: like, I feel like for Bowie in the late 80s and early 90s, his music was falling off. And that reminds me of, of Johnny Cash. Like, if you listen to his, like, he just was not able to acclimate the changes in, like, music production in the 80s and 90s.
1: Yeah. That would be um, really difficult if you're, like, a, a a star that's used to, like, I think, was it Willie Nelson that, like, recorded in, like, a Silver Bullet trailer, rec- like, recorded two of his albums, like, on the road in a Silver Bullet trailer or something? Did he really? I, oh, God, I might be that, saying That is thing. the most Willie Nelson thing I've ever I, heard, though. I kind of think it was either Willie Nelson or Johnny Cash, or one of those guys, like, on the road was recording and, like, had, had been in the trailer, and I can't remember whose it was. Oh, God. But, yeah, I think, like, if you're going from, like, that sort of, like, it's like Dave Grohl was talking about being, like, people being discovered on, like, star shows now like as opposed to like just kind of busting your ass in your garage for you know for years and then you know taking small shows and just building up your your cred basically that way um i i think that's kind of like the you know or like your grandparents trying to learn how to use an iphone Mm -hmm. like it's like something like that where it's like you're so used to doing it a certain way for so long that then these new technologies come along and it's almost like it's like decision paralysis you know where it's like too many options
0: oh a- absolutely um and then you mentioned like but before i get into the 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 next thing that you reminded me of have you listened to um it was actually in 94 and i don't it should have i should have mentioned it um the first american recordings album that johnny Cash did with rick rubin
1: no oh my gosh
0: it like I I listen to it. It's beautiful. It's just um, it's just Johnny Cash and his guitar. Yeah. And he's like, I think most, it's like probably sixty percent original, and then forty percent covers. I mean,
1: I die for his covers though. So oh um, my god, they're so good.
0: And that was one thing that um, uh, I I put I, I talked like in the in the monologue I mentioned when I was talking about Nine Inch Downs, when I was talking about Hurt because that's from the Downwards mm-hmm. file. It was like, I told myself I will not. Get into Johnny Cash because if I do, I'm gonna go on a diatribe. <laughs> yeah. Let's not do that. But, but the the thing that you said was talking about like how David, but listening to David Bowie sounds like it's a person about to die. That's how I felt listening to Johnny Cash's cover.
1: Absolutely. I didn't realize that that was from like an album of covers. But that. Okay. Have you been to the Johnny Cash Museum?
0: I haven't. I where, is that in Nashville? Nashville. Yeah. I've Never been to Nashville.
1: There's this part of it. Dove, I, I,
0: I know it's. I don't want to talk about it.
1: Okay. <laughs> it's
0: not something I'm proud of.
1: It's, so, I mean, okay. It's, you know, a museum for a, a musician, so it's a lot of, like, the same stuff that you see pretty much at every, like, musical museum, which Nashville has so many, so please do that. Um, but they have this part at the end that just, like, I was crying in this freaking museum. It's the poem that Johnny Cash wrote for um, his wife and read at her funeral and it is it's like you know just a few few lines or whatever but then like i have chills right now on the at the, like after that part is like this tv screen that's playing the video for hurt and so you're watching the video for or you're hearing the video for her and like the song playing and then reading that like i literally have chills right now just like everywhere did
0: you did you ball your eyes yes yeah, so of course yeah. i did
1: it's because it's like I can't. I don't know the poem, but it's like something like I brought home flowers today and threw them in the trash or something like that. It's just so sad. It's so beautiful. It's, yeah. It's um, it's a lot. But yeah, that's that covers amazing. And I don't like Nine Inch Nails version of it.
0: <laughs> uh, the
1: I'm poor, so sorry. poor
0: Trent Reznor. Well, have you heard? You know what Trent Reznor's reaction to that was? This is this is this is a great story. To the so he, to, to the to, cover to the cover of Hurt. So Rick Rubin, I guess like Rick Rubin and Trent Reznor were like good friends or whatever. So like Rick Rubin calls him and was like, it's like, hey, man, uh, you know, I'm doing some stuff with Johnny Cash and we were wondering, can he cover, you know, your song Hurt? And, you know, Trent Reznor was like really flattered that, um, you know, somebody of that, like Johnny Cash, an artist of that magnitude, would want to cover his music. He's like, oh, for sure. Um, And anyways, a couple weeks later, CD comes in the mail and he hears it and he was just like, this is really weird. I don't know how I feel about this. And then another couple weeks later, um, he got a videotape in the mail. And he saw the you know, he listened to the, essentially put the song in context because he watched the music video. And his quote was, this is like, I feel like somebody kissed my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> this song is not mine anymore. No,
1: it's not, sir. Um, yeah,
0: No, I, I think they're both great versions, but like, obviously Johnny Cash just has a, they're just, that is in my opinion the greatest cover of all time
1: yeah you know? I, w- I would get behind that
0: um, that
1: or amy winehouse Valerie.
0: yeah that's that's a great one and um anyways so um now we're can we go to the just for funsies absolutely um so just for fun so i know this is since 1990 obviously this is a you know quote unquote 90s podcast you know in in um in a way, um, but just for fun, if we include the years before 1990, which you and I both do enjoy music from that era as well, which would you say was the best year for music?
1: Um, I think you and I talked about this briefly, but I would go 1971. I think uh, just a lot of really iconic albums that really like defined the 70s. So yeah,
0: please because like the when you said 1971, I really didn't do any research beyond that. The only one that came to the top of my head was uh, Led Zeppelin Four.
1: So, Led Zeppelin 4, obviously amazing. Joni Mitchell's Blue came okay, okay, out that yeah. year as well. I need to get my... I have a list of, of the albums, but it's basically... I mean, any, like... Any iconic 70s album is on that list. Wait, can I go grab my phone really quick? And I'll...
0: You use my phone. Okay. Or we can, we can just look up... Uh, what was it? What do you want to A 1971 of music?
1: Yeah, it's it's insane.
0: Let's see who we have in, from 1971. Um... Ooh, Sticky Fingers.
1: Yes, thank you. So here we go. We
0: have Sticky Fingers. We have Imagine. Um, Aqualung. What's Going On came out in 71.
1: I'm telling you, this is a big. It's a big Who's year. next? I'm telling. I know. It's insane.
0: Well, it's, a re- it's a good thing that I put this uh, argument before 1990. Yeah. It'd, it'd be tapestry.
1: Yes, thank you. Tapestry's on there, and it's one of the best. I mean. It's a master masterclass in songwriting. Yeah, I, yeah.
0: Um, Carole
1: King is. I'm. I'm. I was about to make a really. Oh, uh, Alice
0: Cooper had two albums and. Brier uh, later. Have you listened to Nick Drake before?
1: Uh oh yeah. Are you kidding me?
0: You like Nick Drake?
1: I love Nick. Drake. All right, we're gonna
0: talk about after after we stop recording. We'll talk about him because I I love him. Also, Santana put out an album that Santana Three American Pie, came out that year. Wow, that was a really good year. Yeah.
1: yeah, listen. I mean, I don't know about like variety. It's a lot of like you know yeah. folk. It's the best year of your music for me personally. Right. I mean, Johnny, "Blue" by Joni Mitchell. Just like I could cry and listen to that all day long for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, I I have to listen more to to, to Joni Mitchell for sure. I do oh. like I everything that I've heard. I do enjoy, but I haven't. have no, I've only scratched the surface with her, unfortunately. Um, So, for me, um, so, yeah, you just kind of answered that question, Um, the last question I was going to ask, but, um, so, I'll just tell you, like, for me, the I didn't really put too much thought into this, but I said
1: 1987.
0: Hmm, okay. Um, Just kind of, like, you know, my two favorite, probably the genres that I listen to the most, you know, probably rock and hip-hop, so, you know, you have Appetite for Destruction came out that year.
1: Okay.
0: Um, Hysteria by Def Leppard. Hmm. Have you listened to that album before? uh probably it was the first album after their drummer the drummer's car accident where he like they had it.
1: Is that the band is that the guy that lost his arms
0: mm-hmm.
1: both of his arms or just one just one okay still though that's wild
0: and it completely changed their sound and that's a really good album that has like like pour some sugar on me is you know it is what it is is that from
1: that album yeah okay all right yeah
0: and there. uh um, the Cure had an album came out come out that year. Um, it had. The, do you like The Cure?
1: I love The Cure. Because
0: they're they're my favorite '80s band. I would say. Yeah, like, that's a good. Um, and they they had that was the album that had uh, just like heaven.
1: Have you heard the Lumineers cover of that? No, I haven't. Oh, dude, you gotta listen to it. It's oh, it's so good. Imagine like a folk take on or like an indie rock. Well, I guess they are indie rock, but like a folk take on uh, on, The Cure.
0: Oh, that does that is that does sound he, pretty for someone beautiful. who
1: married his wife like he the, I can't remember the lead singer's name but the lead singer's been married to his wife for like 40 years now. They got married. They've been happily married for like 40 years. He writes some of the most beautiful and haunting breakup songs I've ever heard. Pictures of you, I could just <sighs> cry. Yeah. Amazing.
0: Yeah. Unbelievable stuff. And then also that year for hip hop straight out of Compton.
1: Oh, okay. Um okay, so that that album, okay, if you want to talk about like Hip hop albums coming out in 1994, or like, where would Lemonade be without TLC? Where would any of those hip al- hop albums be without N.W.A. Oh, in that, 1987?
0: I I listen, I completely agree. I mean, all of like Biggie, Tupac, all of those like quote unquote gangster rap mm-hmm. artists. Um, oh yeah, I mean that just opened the floodgates. I mean,
1: I guess the case could be made for like Jay Z working on the same kind of thing. In, well, yeah, I mean Jay Z at the was. Same
0: time. I mean Jay Z was like essentially a protege of, of Biggie. Um, oh, was he really? Oh, yeah. I
1: guess I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, But also I have, uh, the other was, you would, uh, I mean, how are, how are you, you're not super big into hip hop, are you like, you like hip hop? Yeah,
1: I know, I know about it. I mean, I'm like, not like, I'm not a Luddite. I'm, I don't live under a rock.
0: Have you heard of uh, Eric B. and Rakim before?
1: Well, and now I'm going to make, look like an idiot. No, I haven't.
0: So they're, but they're, they're one, I mean, if. Their music isn't still, like, super popular. Like, I don't think their music has been passed down to the next generation, unfortunately. But, like, when they came out, they were huge. And they were really big for Golden Age Hip Hop, which is, like, at the, the end of the 80s. Um, they're awesome. Um, and their okay. they're best, well, they're, I shouldn't say their best album because I haven't explored their discography fully. But one of their most significant albums, Paid in Full, came out that year. And that's an unbelievable album. Um also, uh, a couple funk metal albums, which I'm, mm. you know, you know me, I love my funk metal. Yeah. So you got a Chili Pepper album. That was the last Shocking. album to, fe- <laughs> that was the last album to feature Halel Slovak before Wait, he died. Wait, is this? Um the uplift mofo party plan. Okay.
1: I never would have guessed that in a thousand years. When was a blood sugar, sex, magic 91, 91. Okay.
0: 91. Um, and then also, and I think I mentioned this because you had said like 91 was a close second, right? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. 91 was my close second. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then before we, we can talk about that one second, but, um, I also have introduced yourself from 87 by, Mm. um, have you heard of faith no more before? Yes, of course. Yeah. So that, I mean, that, and that was before Mike Patton who, uh, uh, there became was just like you know their virtual you know very virtuous singer um but 1991 so so i would say i think i still think that 94 uh you know is it is was a better year for music but i think 1991 at least 1990 moving forward is was the best year for rock music that i would say
1: okay yeah i could get behind that i do think like was 94 i just wonder like Like, Dookie wasn't even, like... Okay, again, I'm going back to, like, the best albums thing, but, like, Dookie wasn't even Green Day's, like, biggest, best album, right? Like, American Idiot was, like, far and away, like, their most successful. You know, if
0: you would look at album sales, I don't know if that's the case. Really? Actually, I think Dookie sold more albums.
1: There's no way. I
0: think so. Because I think... Because I remember researching this... Because I think I, I read that Californication sold more albums than American Idiot. And I was surprised about that. And Californication sold 15 million. Let's look it up. I have my computer right in front of me.
1: Because <laughs> yeah, Dookie,
0: Dookie sold 20 million copies. I know I read that. So how many? Um, but then also, here's the other thing. That American Idiot came out in 2004. And while illegal downloading was still like not... Huge. It still was probably played a That's factor. That's true.
1: I wonder what they're most like played on Spotify is now. That's probably a better indicator of what people mm-hmm. like more.
0: For sure. Um, American Idiot Sold. I, I I forgot to type in um Idiot, and I just had how many copies of American and then like um, a bunch <laughs> of like books come up. That, oh, uh, yeah. interesting. Let's see, American Idiot. Um Sixteen million copies. All right. Um, so, so yeah, it was it. It was behind Dookie, but then I mean, is that how you measure like a be, their best album? Oh um, well,
1: if you want to get into how we measure a best album, that's right, a whole that's, different that's a conversation. Comver- that's a Conversation for another day. <laughs> if we want to do something analytical, then I think album yeah. sales are the only way we can really measure right. that, right?
0: Um. So on Spotify, let's see. This is I think because this is interesting. I think Basket Case was their biggest one from Dookie. All right. So, their number one is Basket Case, which has um, almost 800 million views. Okay. Um, then you have Boulevard of Broken Dreams. American or no, Idiot. American Idiot actually has roughly 700 million. Um, Jeez. So, yeah. So, three of their top five on Spotify are from American Idiot. Um, but Basket Case is number one.
1: Okay. Wow. Well, yeah. so, so, I'd call that a solid tie. Yeah. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll
0: call it a tie.
1: Um, yeah. But, I mean, like, I so, with, like, Jeff Buckley and and even I mean well TLC no they were when did Lisa Lopez die two thousand two okay all right so they had a... did they have more albums after yeah they had that's, they had fan
0: mail which has no scrubs does no
1: scrubs yeah I was gonna say because that's not on crazy sexy cool but anyway yeah there's like a few a few other uh, artists that I was like oh this is like yeah you put out some good kind of albums but I wouldn't call this like um, like their best which like maybe it's like the most like the highest density of like good albums as opposed to like 2016, which has a lot of like best albums.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear that. I, I totally hear you. Um, and, um, I think we can, we can end on that note <laughs> with you giving 1994, uh, a compliment. <laughs> well, we'll end on that note. Um, but yeah, Ella, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And, uh, Hopefully you can uh, you can rejoin the uh, the podcast in the in the future.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Ella Hyder for being a terrific guest. I hope you'll have a great rest of your day, and that whatever it brings, hopefully music is involved. Again, I'm Doug Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a Ninety Stand. Take care.